a Faith That Obeys podcast, 048, The Conversion of Saul of Tarsus. As we move forward in the book of Acts, the next conversion we encounter is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. For a time, Saul was the number one persecutor of the church. Then, God has a little impromptu meeting with him on a dusty Damascus road. As a result, Saul becomes the number one supporter of the church and goes on to write three quarters of the New Testament as the Apostle Paul. If there's any conversion crafted to convince us that even the worst of sinners can repent and become a follower of Jesus, the conversion of Saul should stand as a colossal encouragement. It is possible for anyone to become a Christian. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus from a biblical perspective is unique in that we hear the story of his conversion presented three times. This is helpful when we knit all three of these stories together in order to get a complete composite of the entire event. We can't read all three rehearsals. That would take too long. Acts 9 is the most complete presentation of the three, so we'll focus on that and then add anything missing using the other two accounts. For reference, let me show you where all three of these stories are located in the Bible. The first time we learn of Saul's conversion is in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. In this narrative, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells this story from a third-person perspective. He reports things which happened to Paul. Luke spent years with Paul on the various missionary journeys, so undoubtedly he would have been very well acquainted with Paul's story. Next, in the book of Acts again, Luke retells the story, but this time it is from Paul's perspective. Paul is telling the story to other people. This happens in Acts 22 after an aggressive mob is stirred to action in Jerusalem. Paul is arrested but permitted to address the crowd. In this Acts 22 version of the story, Paul recounts almost the entire event of his conversion again, but with some critical variation. Saul's third and final conversion story is reported in Acts 26, verse 12 through 23. During this presentation of his conversion, Paul is, once again, under arrest and being extradited eventually to Rome, but has a brief audience with a curious king named Agrippa. Paul is given complete freedom to speak whatever he wants to Agrippa, so he uses his conversion story as a springboard for presenting the gospel. This version also includes some minor additions to the story, which we will review as well. This is a fun lesson, which I use often to help people see the biblical plan of salvation. So not only are we studying this out together, I wanted to show you how to lead this lesson in the hope you might use it and find it effective. I always begin by saying, let's play a little game. We are on a quest. Our goal is to discover the exact instant Saul's sins are forgiven by God. That particular point in time marks the exact moment a person is born again, right? Remember, one cannot be a Christian unless they have received the forgiveness of sins. So, using this event, the forgiveness of sins, we can determine conclusively when and where conversion happens. Let's keep our eyes open for that event as we begin. Acts 9, verses 1 through 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. What an amazing and dramatic story. Not only do we experience the anguish of Saul, we also experience the angst of Ananias as he's called to perform one of the most difficult challenges of his life. This first telling of the story here in Acts 9 is a more thorough presentation compared to the other two. This is the main event, so to speak, and it's pretty robust. Did you see any particular point in time when you thought Saul's sins might have been forgiven by God? Did you notice there was a progressive process moving Saul toward conversion? A light from heaven was his initial introduction to the Lord. I call this the first religious event which occurs in the story. There are many others which Saul experiences, and I want to carefully identify them. In Saul's conversion, we can see the five steps in the biblical plan of salvation. 
God always takes believers through these five steps on their way to the forgiveness of sins or conversion. These steps are hearing the word, accepting the word, repenting of sins, calling on Jesus as Lord, and obeying the gospel. Let's take things step by step in Saul's conversion and see if we can spot them. Saul is on his way to Damascus. With letters from the chief priest in hand, he is about to enter the city and begin rounding up Christians. He is struck down by a brilliant light from heaven, falls to the ground, and is blinded. Then he hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. This is the first religious event which happens to Saul. He is, in a manner of speaking, met by Jesus. In this first event, Saul calls Jesus Lord. Without question, Saul has just received a huge wake-up call and responds in a respectful and appropriate manner. Is this the moment Saul is saved, when he stops everything and calls Jesus Lord? Next, Jesus gives him some specific commands. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Two tasks are assigned. Get up, go into the city. Saul obeys. Is this when he saved upon his obedience to Jesus' commands? Is, is this his repentance? Saul, now blind, is led by the hand into Damascus to a house on Straight Street owned by a fellow named Judas. Luke tells us, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Fasting and praying are some of the most deeply spiritual exercises a person can make in an effort to reach out to God. Fasting indicates a sincerity and a seriousness regarding the position he was in. He's also fervently praying. What do you think he was praying about? It should be pretty obvious. God, please forgive me. God, I'm sorry. God, please restore my sight. I'll do anything if you'll rescue me from this wrath which has fallen upon me. God, what was I doing wrong? God, what do you want me to do? Please help me, save me, forgive my sin. We can only imagine. But what would you be praying if you had been knocked down and blinded by a light from heaven with a voice bellowing commands? Was Saul saved when he fasted and prayed? Were his sins forgiven as a result of his sincere and desperate pleas to God. This is the second major religious event Saul experiences. If saying a prayer to be saved is enough, don't you think God would listen and forgive? That is, after all, what we are taught in modern evangelicalism. Next, we read that God patiently works with a disciple named Ananias to convince him to go search Damascus the exact place the disciples were probably trying to avoid, and go find the specific person the disciples were trying to avoid. After he succeeds in finding Saul, Ananias is told to get close enough to touch him and lay hands on him. This sounds like a great plot for a scary kids movie. Sneak up to the beast and touch him. Well, here's a part of what Jesus told Ananias, Acts 9, verse 12. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. God bless Ananias because he submits to God's commands and goes to find Saul 
Despite some brief protestations, he finds Saul, greets him with cordiality, and places his hands on him, restoring his sight. In this section of the story, we actually see the next two important religious events happen. We see the laying on of hands and a miraculous healing. Was one of these events the exact moment God removed Saul's sins? Is there anything significant about the laying on of hands? Did Saul's spiritual healing come at the same instant as his physical healing? Just for reference, here's that complete event again. It's Acts 9, verse 17 through 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Ananias calls Saul a brother. Is that Jewish brother or Christian brother? Does Ananias consider Saul a Christian by this time? Ananias tells Saul the purpose of his visit is to restore Saul's sight and to make sure Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Had those things happened before Ananias' arrival? Apparently not. Ananias lays his hands on Saul and his sight is restored. What about the Holy Spirit? Did Saul receive the Holy Spirit at this point in time, you know, as a result of Ananias' hands being laid on him? Saul gets up, apparently able to see again, and is baptized. This is the final important religious event. Was it at this time, during his baptism, Saul was separated from his sin? We're not told. We don't honestly know from this passage. It's a mystery. Saul takes some food and regains his strength. He breaks his fast. Does this indicate that he has received an answer to his prayer and fasting and that it is no longer needed? What had happened to bring Saul to this conclusion, allowing him to break his fast? Finally, Saul spends time with the disciples and, in quick order, begins preaching that Jesus is the Christ. This is a changed man. I guess at this point in time, we can safely surmise that Saul has been converted. But we're still left with a major question. At what point along the timeline of Saul's conversion were his sins wiped out? Was it when he called Jesus Lord? Was it when he repented and changed his plans to persecute Christians? Was it when he fasted? Was it when he prayed? Was it when Ananias laid hands on him? Was it when he was baptized? You see, there are lots of religious events Saul experienced which are all part of a process leading to the forgiveness of sins. Saul's conversion may be used as a pattern for every conversion. Do you think God provided one pattern for Saul and some other plan for regular folks to follow? Or, or do you think people can just do anything they want as long as it is sincere? What's the purpose of the Great Commission if any old way is just fine? Using Saul's conversion as a pattern can help us evaluate what's happening in today's religious world. Do the conversions we see today match up to Saul's?
This is why we ask the critical questions trying to pinpoint the exact time Saul is converted. If Saul's sins were forgiven when he was fasting and praying, that might lead us to conclude that something like the sinner's prayer is a spot-on method capable of satisfying God's demand for obedience to the gospel. Unfortunately, Acts 9 does not tell us specifically when Saul's sins were forgiven. But Acts 22 does. Acts 22 is the second telling of Saul's conversion. It's quite similar in nearly every aspect. We learn a little bit more about the purpose of Saul's visit to Damascus, and we learn a little bit more about Ananias being a deeply devout Jew. Here are the additional things we learn about this historical event, which are not included in Acts 9. In Acts 22.6, we learn that this all happened about noon as Saul was nearing Damascus. In verse 9, we read, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. In verse 12, we learn that Ananias was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. A major revelation in this version of the story occurs as Ananias heals Saul in Acts 22:14-15. Listen to this while keeping our quest in the forefront of your mind. Acts 22:14-16. This is Ananias speaking. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Ananias lays out the future plans for Saul of Tarsus and tells Saul to stop waiting. He commands him to get up and be baptized and tells him why. To wash away your sins. This is pretty obvious. Sins are washed away during baptism. If you thought Saul had been converted when he repented, prayed, or fasted, you would be wrong. Conversion must include the forgiveness of sin. Saul could not wash away his sins if the sins had already been forgiven. You can't remove something which has already been removed. Saul's sins were still intact until the time of his baptism. None of the religious events which occurred during Saul's experiences in Damascus had the effect of removing his sin except his obedience in baptism. Now remember, there's nothing magic in baptism, nor is baptism some sort of ritual. Baptism in and of itself does not remove sins. Recall the so-called conversion of Simon the sorcerer. He was baptized, but it was wholly ineffective because of his lack of repentance. Saul is humbled and willing to obey anything the Lord tells him to do. His sins are forgiven because he has come under complete submission to Christ and obeys the command to be baptized. Acts 22 makes everything clear, but there are some other interesting things to learn in the next version found in Acts 26. Acts 26 does not add anything new to the conversion story, but does explain a bit more about the overall mission to Damascus and what Paul would be called to do by God in the future. 
In Acts 26.13, we learn that the light was brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. In verse 14, we learn that we all fell to the ground and Jesus spoke in Aramaic. In verse 14, Jesus uses an interesting phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In verse 16, we get a bit more detail about God's future plans for Saul when Jesus tells him, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there you have it, Saul's conversion, three times. Saul's conversion contains all five steps in the biblical plan of salvation. He hears the message, he accepts the message, he repents of his sin, he calls Jesus Lord, and he is baptized in obedience to the Great Commission. This story, when presented as a mystery and a quest, can really help you show someone who does not understand that sins are not forgiven until baptism how God has designed the plan of salvation. I typically would not review all three presentations. I normally present Acts 9 and ask the questions. I try to have the person I'm studying with commit to a place on the timeline of Saul's conversion, a time they believe sins are forgiven. Inevitably, most will insist that God forgives Saul's sins when he prays or when he repents and gives up his murderous campaign. Next, I turn to Acts 22, and the truth is revealed in dramatic fashion. I love to watch the jaws drop and the lights come on. It's quite exciting. And believe me, in a good-hearted soul, the lights will come on. But there are some who will continue to stubbornly refuse to believe. I have one such story I want to share with you. I'll never forget the day Martin, an elder from my neighborhood Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall, stopped by my house to introduce me to his church. I listened carefully to him, and then I asked a question. Martin, what does the Watchtower teach about how someone becomes a Christian? In other words, what would you tell me to do to accept Christ and be saved? Martin responded, well, a person's saved when they believe in Jesus. Would you say that Saul of Tarsus became a true Christian, I queried? Absolutely, he said. Do you think people are saved before their sins are forgiven or when their sins are forgiven? Well, they can't be saved if their sins are not forgiven, came Martin's reply. Martin, let me show you something. Let's use your Bible, if I may. He was delighted that I had made such a wise choice and eagerly handed it to me. I opened to Acts 9, and we read the complete story of Saul's conversion. I asked him, which one of these religious events would you say was the exact time and place Saul's sins were forgiven? He chose the time when Saul obeyed the Lord's voice and went into Damascus, ceasing his murderous campaign. Martin identified this as Saul's clear repentance and the time of his salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Next, we turn to Acts 22, and I ask him to read it. I could tell he was growing impatient. He got down to Acts 22:16, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. He was stunned. He literally gasped and said out loud, Well, 
I've never seen this before. But there it was, right before his eyes in his new world translation of the Bible. I said, Martin, they've been teaching you some things that are wrong. And instantly the defenses went up. He muttered something like, no, our divine prophets don't make mistakes and quickly turned and left. I was in shock. Using the story of Saul's conversion can have a powerful impact on our understanding of the conversion process. How should we respond? Are we going to be like Martin? Are we going to deny that we could have been wrong? Or are we going to accept the truth, repent, and obey the correct teaching about conversion? Let's thank God we have such a thorough review of Saul's conversion. It is the perfect picture of a man who had a faith that obeys. Well, thanks for listening. Join the argument at www.jointheargument.com.